This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. had to make a little bit of a change here. Our approval for season two, episode one, we thought we'd have it in by now, but there's a little delay at one of the regulators. So I'm going to release this episode now. This is season two, episode two. And then sometime after August 20th, there will be season two, episode one, which will actually have an ethics credit attached to it. So in the next episode, you can look forward to an ethics credit that should be approved in all jurisdictions. Of course, I still have to wait on word for that one approval. Enjoy this episode and sorry for the long delay between episodes. I was trying to do something that was apparently a little too ambitious. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In today's interview, we're going to hear from Nathan and Kelly. Some of you might remember Kelly. We heard from her early in season one. Both are going to talk about some financial planning questions, really about using financial planning as a process with clients. Nathan is going to talk also a little bit about how he applies some financial planning principles to building his business, not just in his client interactions, but really how he thinks about his business. This episode is approved for life insurance credits in the province of Alberta, no accident and sickness credits for this course. It does have a FP Canada financial planning credit as well. It's valid for life insurance credits in all other jurisdictions, just no accident and sickness credits in the province of Alberta. I'm in a little bit of a back and forth right now with the accreditation committee here in Alberta about whether or not the content in this is valid. If you happen to be out there somewhere listening to this and you know somebody on the accreditation committee or maybe even the Alberta Insurance Council and you just want to pass on to them your opinion, I don't want to flavor this, as to whether or not you think this is valid to make somebody more proficient at offering accident and sickness insurance products or servicing those products, I'd be interested, or you can email me and let me know if you think I'm wrong about this. I'm happy to hear it, or if you want to proffer your support, although I expect that it would be better to give that note to somebody at Accreditation Committee or at the Alberta Insurance Council. My email address is jason at businesscareercollege.com. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color is yellow. We have two fairly lengthy interviews in this episode, and we'll get to it momentarily. We're going to hear from Nathan and Kelly. Nathan is going to talk about three different client interactions here. 
and how he applies financial planning principles in those three interactions. Now, something Nathan talks about here a little bit is the decision to fire a client. I hear this quite a bit from financial planners and financial advisors. I think it's good here the degree of introspection that Nathan applies to this and something to consider here in any interaction that doesn't turn out with a positive outcome is did the planner do everything right from the beginning that they could have done to create a better outcome? And you've heard me talk about a couple of books before. I'm going to give props again to the excellent book, Communication Essentials for Financial Planners. This is a publication of the CFP board in the United States, written by John Grable and Joseph Getz. And it's quite good. And they talk in here about staging the relationship so that you can have more productive outcomes with your client conversations. And the other that you've previously heard me mention is Moira Summers' book, Advice That Sticks. And I think Moira does a good job as well of giving some concrete tools that a planner can use in their overall interactions with clients. And maybe there's some stuff there that we can use that would improve the later quality of our interactions with our clients. And I think you'll hear Nathan does have a little bit of doubt as to whether there's something that he could have done at the beginning. I think it's a healthy thing to think about, and I think it's applicable for all of us. I know sometimes when I'm in the midst of a difficult discussion with a client, not that I have that many, you're a great bunch, but in the rare difficult conversations that I have with clients, I sometimes wonder if there's something I should have done earlier to ward that off, to apply those lessons learned, as it were. On that note, let's hear from Nathan. Good morning, Nathan. Thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to have you on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Nathan is a financial planner based in St. Albert. Nathan does a fair bit of insurance business. And I believe, Nathan, you're also investment licensed. Do I have that right? Yes, absolutely. And as time progresses, probably leaning more to the investment side. Perfect. I do know you have a passion for financial planning as a practice, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about some of the elements of financial planning engagement today. Yes, that's right. The client acquisition process. Before the call, you and I had communicated a little bit about some new prospects you've had where maybe things haven't gone exactly according to plan. Can you share a little bit of background about that, Nathan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Just trying to figure out what does the client want and then how does that fit with my business model is that a service i provide and there are different ways you can answer that because i might be licensed for a particular product that the client is looking for however that doesn't always necessarily mean it is a good fit and appropriate for both of us to begin a uh, business relationship with each other. So there has to be a little bit more groundwork involved, asking the right questions, listening to their answers to those questions, and just making sure I'm setting the right expectations. Otherwise, it can be a disappointing experience for both me and the prospect. In the cases you're thinking about, how deep into the engagement, how much Let's say effort did you put into this before 
you recognized that maybe it wasn't the fit you were looking for? Yeah, so there have been varying degrees, I would say. Um, there have been very quick and simple conversations over the phone. Someone gives me a phone call. The very easiest are the ones where they ask, hey, do you also do home and auto insurance? And that those are the easiest, obviously, because I'm not licensed for that. And then even, for example, yesterday, a uh, client who lives up north in Fort McMurray and uh, they were asking if I do life insurance. And the way my business model is kind of moving, the direction is towards face-to-face -to -face client meetings. And so I let them know that it probably wouldn't be the right fit because you're all the way up in Fort McMurray. The connection we had previously is because we do group retirement solutions, we have their work RRSP. And so he sent me an email asking if I do the life insurance. And I just respectfully said, it's just not the right fit because you're all the way up north in Fort McMurray. In a case like that, do you have an alternate person? Do you have, let's say, somebody in Fort McMurray that you could send that person to? So not in Fort McMurray at this time. However, I actually, in my office, I have a colleague, a good friend and advisor who, um, once he returns from holidays, I'll be sure to mention it to him. And it's worked out very well in the past to provide those referrals because what I've learned in the past from other advisors, and it's really good advice, is what are you going to leave that person with when they walk out the door or when they hang up the phone? Have you provided any value whatsoever? Even if it's not the right fit for you and the client, how can you just provide even a little bit of positive feedback or value just so that? they've been helped to some degree. And do you think that when you take that approach, is that about the benefit of the industry? Is that about just making somebody else's day better? What's the motivation for doing that? And I don't think it's a bad motivation. I'm just curious about. Yeah, uh, I think at the heart of it all, I think it would be great if the motivation was just do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. And so if I were calling any service provider for whatever reason, and they weren't able to provide me with what I was looking for, but they went that extra step to give me just a little bit of guidance, I would walk away very much appreciative. Perfect. I think it is good advice, Nathan. I do agree with that. And I hope that I try to do the same in my dealings with people. Now, you talked about some people where you maybe got further into a discussion before you realized that it wasn't going to be the right fit, what would be a case where you put a fair bit of effort in and only to realize that this wasn't going to be something that was going to work within your business model? Yes, I have a perfect example. Uh, it's fresh from a recent transaction where it was an existing client and I've met with him quite a few times. He purchased life insurance about three years ago and it's kind of interesting as a person is slowly transitioning their business model, there are going to be oftentimes a uh, previous experience or a client engagement where you have to realize that your old business model was with this client. How is it going to perform with your new business model and client? And so they got life insurance three years ago serviced very well. And then he had emailed me 
recently saying he needed life insurance for his wife. And uh, as I said, I've, I've done that in the past. I've even done it in, in certain circumstances where a person doesn't want to proceed with a whole financial plan, but maybe if they're a close family friend or family member or what have you, I'm more than willing to just take care of that need. But in this case, it was very interesting because they came in and I already have the established relationship. But right away, I knew something was off because when I explained what my process was, they already told me they had the number for the insurance. And again, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. And we can go with that number. But I just simply explained, I have a due diligence process that I like to walk through. And uh, so they did uh, agree. And part of my needs analysis, even though someone might ask, for just life insurance, I feel like I have an ethical responsibility and also professional requirement to mention if they don't pass away, if the life insurance doesn't come into place, but let's say they have a serious illness or disability, I'm sure you know where I'm coming at now, uh, do they have protection in that regard? Because not only am I licensed for life insurance, I'm also licensed for accident and sickness, things like critical illness insurance or disability insurance. And I feel like in many times in the past, clients have been grateful that I've brought up the conversation. It's not always a comfortable one, especially when you have to bring it up. And they've never even heard of critical illness, for one. But when I did bring it up, there was definitely some pushback and... Maybe it felt like I was pushing the sale, but I very quickly explained, no, it's just part of my process. Anyways, by the end of it, there was a statement made where they said, well, if you can get the life insurance and the disability insurance in place for less than $100 a month, you got a deal. And so that for me is just another red flag. And beyond that, I was just thinking, okay, what is the best possible solution for me and for these clients. So finally, when I did walk through a few just rough numbers for life insurance, it's not always normal for me to provide numbers in the first meeting, but in this case, I felt there's really no reason to delay. And uh, when I provided the insurance quote, that number was also balked at just by the wife. Even the husband was saying, hey, that's a great number. That's a great deal. And the wife was just not seeing it. And so that was just another red flag. So there was a moment when I had to go grab something from the printer, which is in another room. And it was during that time that I really just thought for about 10 seconds, okay, what's my next step? I don't think this is the right fit. And I've obviously dropped the ball from that first client interaction two weeks ago by email. So when I came back, I think it went something like, I haven't had to do this for quite some time, but I don't think we're the right fit. And I had a number of insurance providers showing their numbers, showing their quotes, because again, I want to just not burn any bridges and I want to leave them with some kind of benefit. And I said, here's a list of many different insurance providers that uh, you might find are the right fit. And I'm happy to manage your existing policy. And it was complete dead silence once I said that. 
and they were just thinking and saying, whoa, what just happened? And I did express to the wife, I think you have a poor attitude and I don't like your tone and I just don't think we're the right fit for one another. I apologize if I feel like I was pushing a sale or a product that you weren't intending to get. And so I did my best and she left the room quite quickly. And then the husband and I were just talking just for a moment. And that was basically it. Sounds like a difficult interaction. And I'm sure probably a difficult car ride home afterwards for the couple too. I think that Sometimes the awkwardness of the car ride home is representative of maybe the value of the meeting. And, and it may be that, you know, while you did something fairly difficult there, maybe they can come to a better understanding about what their shared expectations are around their financial lives. Yeah, I completely agree. And I wish them all the best. And who knows if things change in the future, maybe I would consider working with them again but it would be in a completely different context. And if we have time, I can provide a very good example of a new client acquisition uh, where we went through the appropriate process and things worked out well. You talked about a transition in your business model. Have you generally had success bringing clients who were from the old, let's say more transactional model into the new what I believe is a more financial planning oriented model. Would that be accurate? Uh, yes. Yes, I have. It's important to uh, make sure the client understands the reason why I'm doing the transition. And in those instances where they fully understand the reason why, that I want to ensure that I'm providing the greatest value to their financial health and it's going to require making sure I understand their current situation as clearly as possible. I understand their goals and objectives as clearly as possible. And maybe it hasn't been done ever or it hasn't been done for some time, requiring certain financial documents, maybe assessing their risk tolerance, even as simple things like what is your most recent cash flow? And for some people, Maybe that hasn't been a regular practice with the recent advisor. So it's something that you have to really be delicate with. It's very sensitive and you really have to feel out the situation, make sure they're on track. It's almost like starting completely over, starting from scratch. It provided some really good opportunities for planning that the client has been grateful for. I do think that given the relative newness of financial planning for a lot of people. Yeah, I think people are happy to talk through their scenarios in a more holistic sense. So it's good that you're having that success. I do want to actually circle back to something you mentioned about this awkward interaction with this client around their critical illness or disability insurance or a lack thereof. You said they came into your office already with a number in mind. Do you know where that would have come from or how that would have come about? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's not necessarily a red flag, but it definitely gives you an understanding of um, where they're coming from. And they had already met with another insurance broker when I discovered that, and that was early on in the meeting. That just gave me the impression that we're just looking at numbers. Maybe I'm a sensitive guy, but I'm looking more for relationship 
and not just being the lowest bidder or coming in at the lowest price. I certainly think that if you're going to take that approach to your business, then I think that's fine. That's a way to build a business, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like the thing you're looking to do in your business in particular. Do you think clients like that might be better served if there was a strong online insurance market? Do you think that they might just be fine to log in somewhere to a website, plug in that they need a half million dollars of term insurance and be served by that type of thing? Absolutely, I think that'd be a great fit. And I would be more than happy if a situation like that came up again. I said, hey, I think this online program would be a perfect fit for you. It is interesting. I know a lot of advisors, I think the conventional wisdom in the advisory business is that online sale of insurance is not something to be sought. So it's curious to hear you take that position where it would be in some circumstances a better way for clients to get their needs met. Do you have a concern that those clients then would potentially stay ignorant about living benefits and the associated risks? You bring up a good point, and I'm not going to change my answer, but there hopefully would be a time, and it's difficult to say how that would happen, for them to be exposed to the risk, not only of premature death, but hitting a bump along the way with a serious illness or disability, and perhaps the online program could somehow plant that seed. It's interesting, too, there are times where you can plant as many seeds as possible, show numbers, give testimonies, walk them through a hospital. I've never done that (laughs) with a client, but there are just some people that just won't make that next step. But I suppose an online program that at least plants a seed, have you thought about other types of coverage? Actually, one other thing that I can share in preparation for that meeting, I do send what I like to call like a stress test document that talks about in our meeting, we're going to talk about these questions, like what debts do you have? What amount of income replacement do you need? And one of the last steps that I have on that is, are you looking for insurance to cover you if you pass away? What about if you don't pass away? I had forgotten until now that I did send them that document, but I'm not sure if they even looked at it. It doesn't sound like that happened. Now, based on these interactions, and I think that the idea of a preliminary email like that with some questions is a good step, obviously, but a couple different sort of tough interactions or interactions where you had to not necessarily fire a client, but at least not proceed with a relationship. Do you have any lessons learned, anything that you're going to do differently or anything that's stewing as far as your own approach to bringing on new clients or bringing clients from that transactional model into the financial planning model that you're working towards? Definitely. I would say the ideal client profile is constantly evolving, but also getting more clear as my experience in the industry progresses, as my knowledge progresses, and just learning what I enjoy doing, what I'm good at, and what I would much rather pass on to another professional, and that is designed to be in the best interest of the client, because I can't do everything, nor should I. And so as I develop my ideal client profile and learn what I'm good at, what I'm not, it's slowly coming into place. 
Now, I know, Nathan, you're a little bit of a student of behavioral finance. I know it's something you find particularly interesting. It sounds like the set of clients with the face-to-face engagement, it sounds like there might have been some bias, at least from the one party in the household, some bias against insurance or some bias against risk management in there somewhere. Have you given any thought to any possible lessons of behavioral finance and how you might be able to use that to either identify or overcome a possible bias around insurance? That's a really good question. When I hear you say that question, I'm just trying to think of if I were to provide some kind of document supporting living benefits or something like that. Is that what you mean or can you further clarify? I don't have any particular tools in mind, and that's part of why I'm asking the question. I'm always looking for these tools, Nathan. I'm looking for advisors who have been able to take the lessons of behavioral finance and apply them in their own practices. I guess as I'm thinking through this, what might be possible here is, you know, you do an IPQ or an investment profile questionnaire or some version of a of a needs analysis document in order to determine how somebody might approach their investments. And I'm thinking now as to whether there might be something like that that one could derive that might give some indication about how somebody approaches their insurance. I don't believe I've ever seen anything like that, but I don't have enough insurance conversations with people who have that bias in place to know how I would identify it. But that's my initial thought, Nathan, based on just what we've talked about here. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So I'm just going to have to take that with me and ponder on it a bit, chew on it, and uh, think about how I can best approach those kinds of situations, approach those biases. I appreciate that food for thought. It may be a solution without a problem. It may not be such a common issue that it's worth solving, but it's the thing you hear periodically in conversations with advisors is people who just will not commit any premium to risk management or they have some artificial number in their head, like $100 a month. That's a common barrier I think people bump into and they just won't go beyond that. Or, you know, we're already spending enough on insurance, so we don't need disability insurance, that type of approach, right? And I do agree. I mean, people should be conscious of where they're allocating resources. And as much as we'd like to see every single risk covered with every client, it's simply not realistic that everybody has great life insurance, great disability insurance, great critical illness insurance, great long-term care insurance, great homeowners insurance, great auto insurance, and so forth, right? Yeah, of course, there's only so many dollars that we have to work with. And so the question is, what is the best thing to do with this dollar in my hand? And I think that goes back to my question about some sort of risk assessment questionnaire or risk assessment checklist or something to that effect. I think there's probably a solution in there somewhere. But again, maybe I've come up with a solution without a problem. It's a good good comment. And I think one reason why I just appreciate the financial planning process is you're building from the ground up just like you would a home. You're starting with a blueprint. Of course, no one would feel comfortable living in a home that once they found out the home was not built with a blueprint, how would your mindset change? I've even mentioned that to someone and sometimes they say, yeah, sometimes it feels like our home wasn't built with a blueprint. 
And that's just case in point, evidence right there. And so as far as having an insurance conversation and maybe approaching objections clients have, when you've done the groundwork already, as far as everything connected with each other, insurance, investments, estate planning, even retirement planning, and cash flow management, because the dollars have to come somewhere, when you've kind of molded that all together, I think it really is beneficial for the entire client-advisor relationship. Agreed. The blueprint analogy is a really good analogy, and I expect people would, especially people who have the home where there's seems like there was no plan in place, I think people will respond well to that. That's a nice tangible analogy. Do you have any last minute thoughts, Nathan, around either these client interactions or anything related to what we've discussed today? If I can just share real quickly a good example of a new client, and I will have to say they were previously, before we entered into a business relationship, we were close friends. So you can take that for what it's worth. It began when they mentioned one, just one of their investments was underperforming and they wanted me to take a look at it. So kind of similar to the life insurance situation, they're kind of focusing on just one aspect of their entire financial plan, this one investment that is lagging behind. And so I was happy to uh, take a look at it for them. However, I remained diligent to my process and stayed disciplined in that I explained to them, I look at a person's whole financial well-being before I can give any advice, which meant I sent them a client questionnaire. They completed it. And in our first meeting, we reviewed the client questionnaire. I learned more about their goals and objectives. They brought copies of their financial documents that I was able to review. And uh, we also completed a letter of engagement, which right then and there, they were able to establish that, yes, we're comfortable with looking at our whole entire financial plan. That was meeting one. Meeting two, I was able to review and analyze where they are currently and where they want to be. And then I was able to provide a rough sketch of first steps. And in that case, we actually did need to discuss insurance needs. And so we completed a needs analysis in that second meeting as well. The third meeting, we reviewed insurance numbers. We also, there was no choice and I totally understood, we had to review investment options because they were chomping at the bit. They were really excited to see what investment options I could provide. And I made sure they knew that I knew they really wanted to see what investment options I could provide. So I really appreciated their patience, and I made sure to commend them on that. By the end of the third meeting, we had looked at the numbers for both insurance and investments, and it was just a little bit of tinkering that needed to be done by email, by phone, so that the fourth meeting, really all we had to do was sign some forms for both investments and insurance. That's basically all we did for that meeting, and we went away very happy. Now, very special note, we were able to reassess and provide more adequate coverage for their life insurance. And very interesting for the wife, because the husband had adequate disability coverage already, she declined the critical illness insurance. 
But how is this different from the other situation? Well, at least they had gone through my process. They had made a much more informed decision. Um, their major objection was really they hadn't heard of it before. That was basically it. And critical illness insurance compared to other financial products is relatively new, I suppose. And so they just needed more time to think about it. And I had them sign a waiver of liability letter, which I wasn't even able to get to in the first experience. I'm sure you can understand why. But in this case, they signed a waiver of liability letter and they said they're more than happy to review it down the road. And so by the end of it all, we're both very much looking forward to the future engagement. That sounds like some classic seed planting, Nathan. That's really good because I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that issue sorted out one way or another in a reasonable time frame. That's quite good. And you're right. That's a lot different than the same lack of desire to purchase that product in the first example. This sounds like a far more open-minded type of decision. Yep. I would definitely agree. And it was just an enjoyable process. And some might think, especially from an advisor's point of view, for meetings before we even put ink to paper. But in this case, their husband was in his 50s, wife in her 40s. They have four grown children and a uh, aging parent that also lives with them. And just a very complex financial situation that did require a lot of analysis. And that's just everything flowed through that to take four meetings, which probably took over the course of time. It was about six weeks from first interaction to signing, which in their long scheme of things, if you consider having a client for Lord willing, as long as both of us shall live, that spans decades. So six weeks doesn't actually sound like a lot of time. No, although it can be frustrating in the moment when if you're used to one or two meetings and you double that up, it is just more commitment. I'd like to thank you very much, Nathan, for sharing those frank experiences of two somewhat negative client interactions and one positive client interaction. Good to round it out with that really good story. Appreciate your candor and the thought you give to these problems. Thanks very kindly, Nathan, and have a wonderful day. It's my great pleasure. Uh, thank you for your time, and I wish you all the best. Thanks a lot, Nathan. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you will have to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. We're going to hear a little bit of contrast in the two interviews here. Nathan talked about presenting to a client using spreadsheet or sort of facts and figures. Although he didn't keep to that, he really moved into that blueprint analogy, which I quite liked. I think You'll hear Kelly talk a little bit more about using a picture, trying to summarize the financial plan in just one page or in a picture or something that is maybe a little bit more relatable to the client. And I think it's important to find some tools like that, whether it's stories or pictures 
or the analogy that Nathan used, the blueprint analogy. This is something that draws heavily on the book that I previously mentioned, Advice That Sticks. So let's hear from Kelly here and hear about her approach to presenting this information. Joining us today, we have Kelly. Kelly's a financial planner based here in Edmonton. She works at a firm that does comprehensive financial planning, and her primary role is to act as the in-house financial planner for clients of that firm. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. So we'll get into something that you and I spoke about a little bit offline. And given that your primary function is in that sort of pure financial planning role, you spend a lot of time working with financial planning software. Can you talk through your financial planning software of choice? It's a question I get a lot. Sure. I've been using FP Solutions for probably about 10 years now. It's a software that I, I've liked using that whole time because it's functional, it's comprehensive, and it's easy for clients to see what's happening and for me to talk about what they need to focus on. And you've experimented with some other software packages here and there. What have you, and not necessarily to name specifics, but what have you not liked in other packages or what have you found other packages lacking that FP Solutions would do well, for example? One thing I like about FP Solutions is that you can really tailor specific years. So if a client has a year where they're on maternity leave and they're not taking their regular income, I can put a minus in a box and exclude their income for that year very easily. It's Excel-based, so if you know how to use Excel at all, you can really navigate quite easily. Some of the other software that I've used hasn't been as easy to navigate for those one-of-a-kind situations or one-off situations. There was one that I was trying out that really was intriguing to me. It seemed like it had a lot of capabilities and it did, but one thing that I, I really was not pleased about is if clients had extra income in a year that wasn't allocated to uh, savings or particular spending use, that excess money was automatically allocated to savings. And I think everybody knows just intuitively that people don't behave that way. So their retirement pot would be enormous. And it was all because of this allocation that just I didn't think should be there. And there was no way to get around that. How did you figure out that that allocation wasn't, we'll say, suitable or appropriate? Well, it's just really a matter of, of real, real life reality. People don't, if they've got an extra buck in their bank account, uh, they don't call me up and say, I'd like to deposit this to my RSP. So, you know, I, I looked at the end result. It was quite different than what FP was giving me. And I, I did a little digging, uh, well, really just a cursory look and realized that this was scooping all that excess off. It just, it, unfortunately, it, it really threw off the value of that software for me. That's a really good example. That's where knowing the software that you're using and knowing what to expect, I think, makes a big difference without really knowing that that's the problem you were looking for, you're able to identify it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, you have to have a few plans under your belt to know what's starting to look real and what isn't. And once you've done a few, you can pretty quickly pick up whether something's off, whether you're using FP or you're using something else. A lot of what you're doing ends up being basic data entry, but it's the the thought process that goes along afterwards that's obviously the most important part. So things can go wrong because a wrong number was entered here or there. You have to be able to look at things and quickly understand what's going wrong, if anything. Is there anything in FP solutions that you find lacking or anything that you'd like to see done better with that particular package? Yeah, actually, I would love to see some software that allows a client to see specifically when the best time to take their CPP and OAS is and what the best drawdown strategy is. And, you know, FP is great for the accumulation phase and you can definitely maneuver the decumulation phase, but it's complicated and it requires me to do a lot of math and a lot of input that I would rather a software do for me and make it more visually appealing and the whole point of a plan is for a client to see in picture what we're trying to move them towards and what they're trying to move towards because that's what clients see us for is what is their end game and most people are visual they don't want to see a spreadsheet they want to see a picture. So it would be nice to have software that would show those elements. You're probably the third person I've spoken to in the last month for whatever reason about the sequence of withdrawals for which account in retirement. It's a very common question I get. And I did recently come across, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but and I have not seen it myself, but I recently came across Cascade. Have you checked that out? Actually, I saw an article yesterday about a couple of different decumulation softwares. So it's my intention definitely to have a look at those over the next couple of weeks. It can literally make the difference of sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the decumulation side of it right. So it's rather important. And the CPP and OAS timing issues are big as well. Again, those are common questions that I get. You know, I've built out basic Excel calculators for CPP, but it's hard to take all factors into account with Excel for Canada Pension Plan, especially when you get into survivor's benefits. Now, you talked about having visuals that clients respond to. What have you found most effective in terms of getting clients' attention or producing something that will spur clients to act? What are some of the deliverables or the visuals that you found success with there? I do a fair bit of cash flow planning for clients. So I've done a few spreadsheets and calculators with Excel myself. In that realm, what I find really impactful for clients is to see a bottom line number. So, you know, if I show clients that paying down their debt using my strategy is going to save them $5,000 versus utilizing the non-strategy that they're currently working with, when I show them those two numbers, and really it's a small calculator and two final numbers, current scenario versus recommended, those two numbers together, clients are often completely taken aback that just making small switches will amount to such tremendous final results. In FP Solution, some of the things that I really like about that software is visually, if clients are short in retirement, it's really easy to see. There's 
there's red bars, there's a gap between what they have coming in, what they need and instantaneous. I don't even have to start talking. If there's a gap, they look at the chart and they go, oh, what's happening here? And they, they point to that gap or the red bars. So it really is about just simple visuals. The other one that is a bit surprising that this is so meaningful to clients, but FP also has a chart that shows income in their working years versus retirement years. And I get a ton of questions about RRSPs and whether they're valuable, whether it's worthwhile contributing to an RRSP. And I find that visual explains it without words. I talk clients through it, but it's really obvious that, you know, you contribute to your RSP when you're a higher income earner. And as your income drops off, the change in your tax brackets is significant. But talking about that without the visual picture Clients don't hear the words. They need to see that. And it needs to be clear and succinct. And I really surprisingly spent quite a bit of time on that one picture with all of my clients. Those are really good examples. And I think it's good to note here that if you know how to use the pictures, no, a picture is worth a thousand or more words in these cases. That's excellent. Now, you mentioned that you have some specific Excel sheets that you've built yourself as well, like a couple of sheets around cash flow. Is that something that you can elaborate on a little bit more? Sure. So I always get clients to provide me with their best effort at what they're spending money on. And most people have no clue what they're spending money on, how much they're spending in different categories. So I always focus on clients showing me what they do know. So we know what our mortgage costs are and generally what our utilities and we know our property taxes, all that kind of stuff. So I put all those kind of known quantities in a spreadsheet and then I put a savings category into a spreadsheet in the various areas that they're saving money into. I put their net revenue and then I put kind of a broader category for those expenses that they may or may not have a clear picture on and just tally those numbers up sum them up at the end and I can show them really quickly if what's coming in and what's going out matches up and then clients too can see if those broad categories are where they want their money to go without having to be so specific about what they spent on groceries last week which I don't even know what I spent yesterday. It is I think a common challenge how do you get from the sort of intangible number that people spend every month to an actual workable number on a spreadsheet or in a financial planning software? Can you give a little bit more detail or breakdown as to how you fill in those kind of otherwise unaccounted for expenses? To be honest, I don't expect clients to come to me with those numbers. So I'll tally up what they know and then essentially what's left over would end up going into that other category of you know expenses that we know happen, but we don't know what those amounts might be. I do this normally with clients at the beginning of our relationship. So once they've been a client for a while, they know what to expect, but it's a lot of effort for somebody to put their financials together for somebody that they have never met and it's a lot of stress for a lot of people. So I honestly, I really don't put a lot of time into that side of it. Here's what we know. Let's focus on what we know 
And let's be okay with the fact that you don't know this other category specifically right now. Here's kind of what's left over that could go into this category. Over the next few months, let's have a look at what that actually looks like. But going back and having people be specific so I can be specific, I think is just too much to ask of people too soon. It puts people in a spot where they're already coming in and we're trying to develop a trust relationship. And I don't like people feeling like they need to backpedal from the get-go. And people really do in that situation. They feel a little bit uncomfortable trying to come up with something that they probably don't have a truthful answer to because they haven't spent a lot of time thinking it through. Yeah, I do think People generally think that you expect that they know where all their money is going. Everybody thinks that they're supposed to be perfect. And I think that if more people realized that an approach like what you're talking about, a fairly general approach to at least a starting point for cash flow, I think that would make people more comfortable starting into financial planning engagement. So I like that, Kelly. That's a good approach. Do you find that as you work with clients over a period of time that you start to get a little bit more fidelity in that cash flow statement, or is it even necessary to do that? The way I structure it for people, it becomes so that it's not exactly necessary to do that. I look at it like this. If you're covering off your known expenses like your mortgage and your taxes and your utilities you're covering off your savings you're paying your debts and there's a difference between the revenue coming in and those three categories then probably what goes on in that broad swath of other doesn't really matter right if you're meeting your goals which is being able to meet your mortgage payments and all those things if you're meeting your goals to save money, if you're meeting your goals to pay your debt down, what's left, have at her, right? <laughs> it's not that necessary to be picky about how much you spent on groceries last week versus how much you spent on clothes. I kind of don't take that same approach to spending money, I guess. You've given a fair bit of thought to how you approach clients' cash flow and how you help clients to understand their cash flow. Can you talk a little bit about where you developed that approach, Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. So I give a lot of credit to Stephanie Holmes Winton for the cash flow planning workshop or educational program or what have you. I did a number of her training courses and I thought that her thoughtfulness about cash flow was really valuable. And I always tell clients whether they have a lot of money or you know they're they're they've got young kids and feels like every dollar is accounted for just having a good handle on your cash flow is probably the most meaningful financial tool that i can have them leave my office with it's important at least to every so often take a step back and be somewhat aware of our dollars coming in and going out and I thought Stephanie's program about cash flow planning was just really helpful in helping me organize what I was already thinking about. I think that's great when you can take an education program like that and immediately turn it into something that is useful for your clients, give your clients an actual deliverable that meaningfully changes their financial lives. Okay, in that interview we heard Kelly talk a fair bit about her choice of financial planning software. I find this a valuable conversation. 
It's a question I sure get a lot of, and I don't deal with that many different financial planning softwares here. I would give props in particular to Cascades, which I mentioned in the interview, and Snap Projections. And of course, we heard Kelly talk about her choice there. I do hear quite a few people who do like Razor quite a bit. So you got to shop around a little bit, talk to other people about what they're using and what they're happy with. A lot of the programs have a free one-month trial. The challenge I find there is often sort of adopting it heavily enough to get value out of that one-month trial doesn't necessarily get you far enough. And the other thing I want to mention is Kelly talked specifically about using Excel. And I think that Excel is a tool that all financial planners should be ready to use, not necessarily all the time. And I wouldn't suggest that you want to present a whole bunch of Excel work to clients. That's not the point. The point is to use Excel to figure out what the best outcome is so that you can then turn around and present that to the client. If you're not proficient with Excel, tons of good stuff on YouTube actually to get to learn Excel right from getting started on through for students that went through capstone course with us, they all learn it in the capstone course. Of course, capstone is no longer a thing, or at least no longer will be a thing by about the end of October of 2019. I wish there still were. That's a good place to learn that particular skill set. I'm surprised at how often I hear a student who comes back to me later on and says, wow, I can't believe how much now I'm using Excel having learned it in the capstone course. The other tool that Kelly references here, and I think would be great if anybody knows of anything, please do reach out, is some sort of an optimizer to determine when to take the Canada Pension Plan. It's a calculation I find really has to be done manually as of right now. There's about 15 or 20 data points here. I have seen some good US equivalents with the uh, Social Security program. Of course, that's a much larger market and maybe a little more financial incentive to develop something like that out. But it would be nice to have a tool in Canada that helps with CPP. Of course, with CPP going through a set of changes between now and 2025, this is a little bit of a more complicated calculation to do. And the other thing that I want to mention is Kelly talked specifically about the cash flow specialist workshops with Stephanie Holmes Winton. And I hear really great comments about these all the time where you get to delve into cash flow and help clients to better understand the dollars in and dollars out. And I think you hear Kelly talk about it here. It's not about understanding every last dollar. I think sometimes we want to have this right down to the penny understanding of cash flow. And I don't think that's helpful. I think what Kelly talks about here is helping the client to just understand better what dollars come in every month and what dollars go out every month, having a better overview of your income and your spending. The number for today's episode is nine. The number for today's episode is nine. Okay, thanks to some folks who were good enough to pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. Had a good chuckle at both, actually. So 
Nice. Thanks for the personal comments there. Robin and Robert both left comments and Robert specifically mentioned that as he's listening to the episodes, and I know Robert's a very technically minded guy, so this doesn't surprise me. As he's listening to the episodes, he will pop over to Siri and leave himself a voice memo for stuff that he wants to research further. Also, Jeff and Nathaniel both hit me up by email and commented on their listening experiences. Appreciate that. And then Ian and Regan, both within 24 hours of each other, independent of each other, asked if we would be able to send emails out when there's a new episode released. And I think we're going to be able to do that to make sure that we're not violating any terms of communication that anybody agreed with. I know Regan will appreciate that. If you have the chance, pop over to iTunes, leave us a review. It helps others to discover us and helps to keep the podcast going. So I always appreciate that. And it's not too early, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, to start working on those CE credits. You can pop over to bccquiz.online and start into your CE credits. If you've listened to the episode, it'll only take you two or three minutes to go through the quiz that's there. Do it once you're stopped. So once you get where you're going, pop over to bccquiz.online. little five-question quiz there to get your CE credits. You spent the hour listening. You might as well finish it out. And of course, there is a cost there. If you're a subscriber, you're already paying that. If you're not a subscriber, then 15 bucks a month will get you into that CE credit system. We are back to our every two-week schedule. Thanks for your patience over the summer as we ironed out some bugs, but we should be good to go for every two weeks. In fact, I know the next episode is now ready to go as of the recording of this content. Thanks very much for listening and have a great day. A bunch of people have a hand in producing this podcast. Joseph Tong takes care of our music and editing. Anthony Summers is responsible for tech support. Maria Nguyen takes care of all the CE applications to the various accrediting bodies. Marjorie Lewis takes care of certificates when the machine doesn't do it. Desiree Gretton Hicks and Penny Watt take care of our marketing, making sure that there are folks out there to listen to the podcast. Thanks to all those who help out.